Let's begin now. I woke up this morning and I said, you know, instead of waiting for a good day to happen, you know, waiting around through ups and downs, you know, I, I just said, look. to the program. It is a breath of fresh life. I am one of your co-hosts, Garrett Hayden. I'm joined by Andrew Lydon and Brenna Keefe. How are you guys doing today? Pretty luxurious. I'm on Cape Cod right now, which is not bad at all, so I can't complain. Yeah, feeling good. Happy to be here. Good. Good. So, um, as you guys may have noticed, we were uh, not with you guys last week. There were some things going on with uh, Andrew and Brenna, so... Happy that we're back this week. Um, And so this week I kind of had teased on Twitter yesterday that um, this conversation or this episode is going to be centered around race and privilege and Black Lives Matter. And um, so this this conversation definitely, I think, is something that we've been meaning to have for, for a long period of time. But I think we just wanted to wait for a right time that it made sense to discuss this. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I think that this episode might be, you know, uncomfortable, but I think that that's the point. I think that that's the point for, for us to make ourselves uncomfortable and have these conversations that we probably should have been having all along. But, you know, I think that we as human beings continue to, to continue to learn and try to grow. And so I think that's what kind of we're trying to do today. Um, so I guess with, you know, all the things that have gone on, in about the last month that it's kind of Black Lives Matter has come into the consciousness um, of, you know, us as as Americans, I think, and kind of around the world, it's kind of come back into consciousness. So um, I guess just for you guys is to what your kind of overall thoughts are, you know, kind of an overall look as to like what's been going on, especially in the last month. Um, I think the the conversation that has really kicked off in the last month is one that I I really do I know you said it but I wish we've been having our entire lives like the the number of things that and I I know I had said to you we both earlier that I you know have been trying to get as much information as I can and still say stay healthy you know mentally because in order to fight the fight you need to be able to you know help yourself a little bit and I think that I've done a lot of research into it, but I was saying to you both earlier was that I've kind of just taken the week to self-reflect on everything that I've been kind of getting in. And I think I'm, I'm finally towards a point where I won't cry when we talk about these things. And I can kind of sit and say, like, okay, I'm ready to help other people start this journey in a way that like, I don't want to attack people. I don't want anyone to be put down. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I just want to help educate people. And I think yeah. in the last month, that's really where my head has gone to, has been educating myself and now finally being ready to have that conversation with others. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the most important times in our human history, for sure. Um, definitely, like, a key takeaway just for me is, like, just to, to listen to people in their organic experience. And, like, um, obviously, like, I don't know how many years before, but Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick was taking a kneel, and he was very much persecuted for where he stood on that, <clears throat> about police brutality in a very peaceful way. And, um, you know, this continues to happen, and this continues to be... Um, you know, if it's plaguing the black um, community, then of course, you know, we're all so deeply tied together. It's directly plaguing all of us. Um, and now it's to the point where um, the whole world is kind of standing at attention and looking for that next move. Um, and I hope that that's reflected in the polls. I hope that's reflected in new politicians. I'm hoping that this comes with a kind of an avalanche of change, if you would. And I, I do really hope that from all this just terrible pain that's coming from our nation um, that we can begin to order a world which is definitely deeply rooted in, you know, a love and understanding and listening to one another. And I think that, like you said, if we had been doing that from a long, for a long time, we'd been scaling that for 40 years or, you know, even longer, you know, where would we be? Um, but the truth of it is we are where we are now of us are alive right now we can control you know we can control the community around us we can control the five people around us we can control what we can control and um like you said hopefully that we do that for um do that for good yeah i mean i think it's 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 such a unique time because it's come at a time where a lot of us are you know kind of isolated and are kind of in our homes and have the opportunity to think about these things. And I think, you know, maybe this is, this will sound really weird, but I think having this time of kind of isolation might actually be a blessing that this means that we're able to sit down, we're able to think about these things because, you know, if, if this wasn't the case and we're just going about our regular lives, you know, would this stay in people's consciousness? And, you know, I think, just for me, it's just been a lot of self-reflection and thinking about, you know, ways that maybe I can change and, you know, things that maybe I've done, done poorly in the past, you know, and how can I improve on them? You know, how can I educate myself? And I think, you know, as Brenna said, I think it's educating yourself and educating other people in kind of a, I don't want to say a different way of thinking or new way of thinking, but maybe that's what it is, you know, and I just think... We, we need everyone to be more understanding and have more empathy of people that have different, have different experiences than us and you need to be willing to listen to that. I think one thing that, that really makes me think of too, and I don't know, I don't know exactly when this connection happened when you were talking here, but that always makes me think about like a lot of the time you hear like there's systemic people are racist like but what does that actually mean what does that actually look like like as three white, white people we don't know and so I think like the one really other positive thing that has been coming out of this is that people are now outwardly sharing their experiences and like we're reading about things that I would never have thought twice about as a white woman you know who's who looks the way that I do like there was one story um about a family and their black family and the delivery man had delivered the wrong package to their house 
and then they but they left the package there because if they were to pick it up and bring it over to the neighbor's house they don't know what the neighbor could do mm. and like that's literally something that i have done countless times in my neighborhood like i got mail for other addresses and i just walked it right over and delivered it never thought twice about it you know like it's it's those experiences those stories that we don't hear about so we don't know i feel like i feel like if i heard that story five years ago i wouldn't have been the ignorant piece of shit that i was you know like i don't know and at the same time i guess i can't really comment on that because i don't know what i would have done five years ago but Mm -hmm. i do know what i can do now and that's important to focus on but i just think it's that's one of the things that i'm glad has come out of it is that people are willing to share Mm -hmm. because they don't have to you know it's not their responsibility to share their own Mm -hmm. awful experiences but it is helpful unfortunately yeah. I feel like this episode's going to have a lot of long silences with a lot of retrospection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think so too. I kind of was prepared for that. Um, yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. You, you guys cut out for a second. Oh, no, you're good. What did you say? I think this episode what? I that we're going like... to have a lot of long, long pauses. Oh, yeah. Correct. Um, yeah, I think um, going back to, uh, Brenna, your point of people sharing, you know, this is kind of a little bit of a, a stretch, but... Um, it's been interesting and it's been great for, for me at least to see so many people, you know, sharing articles and sharing, you know, um, information about, you know, Black Lives Matter and about, you know, the things that are going on. And I don't know, it's been a, a sense of kind of pride for me in the sense that I am, you know, surrounded by a lot of people in my community that are very aware of things that are going on and people that are willing to kind of share and, you know, I don't know if it's because of the area that, that I'm from that a lot of people are, you know, very tolerant and very willing to kind of share a lot of information. It's just, it's just been, it's, it's been great to see, you know, that a lot of people are, you know, for this and are willing to, to do, to kind of put themselves in action. Um, and that's just been a really, a really beautiful thing to see. Yeah, at least for me, like, I thought of like at the turn of the century, like um, you know, say this, like the the it, the age of information that you could look up anything, like who is the president in nineteen forty, and you could just have that information. I was like, that's the beauty of the internet is everyone can access all this information. They're going to grow so smart, and then that's how we're going to balance out like you know people who don't have the means to education in other countries and developing worlds will have all this information and that's the really big beauty of the internet and that's it and I hate it I mean people I'm not so quiet about how much I dislike social media and yet over this month um, so much social change and petitions and all these things have just gotten so much traction and people like you said have an avenue where they don't have to go to the New York Times they don't have to go to the Boston Globe to share their experience and 
this place that I had a pretty much a very much dislike for because people are kind of building up these false egos and things like that. Well, now it's actually a place where the the youth can really speak their piece, and I have like completely changed how I do view those sites and you know things like I mean I think Twitter's had a huge effect on this. Um, you know, I've attended multiple rides and I've found out all about all of them through Instagram. You know, that's that's an interesting thing to consider um, about how the new age of information has actually had, a, at least from my small vantage point, had a big effect on social change. Do you actually? I was I was thinking about this too earlier. Do you feel like depending on what social media site you're on, you have different feelings towards things? Because like I found that when I'm on Twitter. I feel empowered and I feel like I'm getting all this like knowledge and I have this solid community where everyone feels the same way that I do. We all want to fight together. But then I go onto Facebook and I have to argue with like 60 year old Karens because they want to post back on things that like they have no right to comment on. But then at the same time, I'm responding back, you know, in a way where like I'm trying to help them see the error of their ways and point out things, you know? So it's like, I guess I, I view Twitter as like this empowerment site and then I go onto Facebook and I slowly get deflated <laughs> and then I go, you know, like I feel like it's an endless cycle, but I think it's the, the way that the social media sites are formatted and created and who uses them. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Or am I just like, no, you're, world? you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, I think Facebook is, is a site that for a lot of, you know, people that are, you know, older you know, maybe in their 50s, 60s, kind of like, you know, parent, parent age. Um, it's a lot more of kind of a user-friendly site that it's very easy to, like, create a profile. It's very easy to kind of learn how to, how to use. I think Twitter just is, you know, a little more complicated than that. And so I think, like, that's just the, the easy, simple answer. Um, or that's at least what I've noticed. Um, but it's it's interesting that I've kind of seen on both places that, you know, people are, are sharing information, sharing articles, and, you know, I think it's, 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 it's refreshing that there are a lot of people in the circle that I have on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, that a lot of people are, you know, tolerant, kind of think the same way that I do. But on the other hand, I think that the point of this movement is to try to reach people that don't agree. And I think that that's kind of the most important thing. And so I feel like on one hand, it's good to see people posting these things, but on the other hand, it's like, well, what are you, what are you really doing if you're just reaching to people that already agree with what you agree with? And I know that it's it's easier said than done to do that. It's way easier to you know share something instead of you know responding to someone else's article about you know something that might be you know co- contrary to what the popular belief is. I don't, but I don't believe that Facebook is a place where people are coming to have their minds changed. And I think that with the media, that's true. People are not having to have that raw face-to-face interaction. Yeah. Um, at least I feel like in Facebook, you kind of see the polarities. At least in politics, I can't speak on this movement in particular, but mm-hmm. um, I see people who are staunch advocates of um, Bernie, and I see people who are staunchly advocating for Trump. And they kind of just beat each other up on the keyboard, and then that's kind of that. Um, but what you said, I think, is interesting about like the sixty-year-old haunt. I think that's a 
like you said, a way, probably a way more impactful conversation is like, can you change that? Can you change that mind? And then of course I always kind of put the asterisk next to it because those people are nearing death. And then, you know, as Brian as a teacher, like, how do you change the youth? I think it might be, you know, maybe a two-to-one benefit is if you can change the youth. That's just me speaking out of my ass, but that's just what I think. No, but you have a point, though. Like, when I, like, I mean, you, you both know, and, like, for anyone listening to this, I teach at a high school in a very white suburban area that I grew up in and like not very diverse, you know, and, and I came out of my high school experience very ignorant and probably very racist. Um, and then I went to college and it was much more diverse and a inner city and, and I got really that experience and I was given the ability to learn how to teach in an inner city setting and in a rural setting out in Oregon. And I got to use, you know, my knowledge and experience when I taught in Rochester in a middle school. And I think all but two of my students were people of color. And then the other, the two were white. And my world was rocked. But I, I think I did a huge chunk of my listening and learning and reflecting when I was there. Like, and I, I had to check my privilege every single day. Because I came in as a white teacher teaching these kids who, you know, I've probably been a face that they've been scared of, you know, throughout their lives. And here we are, and I'm coming into school to teach them and tell them that they're wrong or they're right, you know. And it's a scary experience for any kid. I mean, my my students were eighth graders, and they would come to school and tell me about how they got followed around in the convenience store by the owners. They're literally children, eighth graders, and they're being followed around. They, I don't know, I, I think it was a whole experience. We actually, we, I read a book with them, um, and it was all surrounding privilege. It's, um, oh my gosh, what is it? It's the Tupac movie, the, oh my god, why am I blanking on it now? Whatever. It's a book. It's really good. They turned it into a movie. It's about a girl. She's in a car with a guy. The guy gets shot. Um, two, they're both black. And then it's like she lives in this neighborhood that's like very low socioeconomic neighborhood, mainly all black individuals, but she goes to school at this like very Life white school. What is it? Poetic Justice. No, it's like the, the, oh my God, it's going to literally, I'm going to look it up in a minute or two. But anyway, we read the book and as we're going through it, I let off every conversation with I am a white woman who has never felt the experience of privilege and when a police officer walks up to my car I am not scared and I need you to know that I need I need to acknowledge that and I need to lead off with that in this conversation because your experiences in your community and driving in a car going anywhere I will never understand it and I need you to know that but I would follow up with and I'm listening I'm here to hear you. I'm here to see what we can do because we can make a change. I don't know if I could ever have that conversation at Nita Kai. I'd like to. I really would. But the setting made more sense. The kids knew what I was talking about. No one was going to push back on me because that's their lived experiences every day of their life. It was, I think it was that for me was the most telling was our systemic racism in our school education system. The prison to pipeline system, like, these young boys, they're, they're just acting the way that they were raised to act and the way that their environment, you know, helped them 
they come and develop and survive. And they're coming into school and it doesn't meet that same format of what they've been doing their whole lives. And they spend all day in in-school suspension. Like, what's that doing for them? Literally nothing. It was, I don't know. It's really, I mean, I could talk about it for hours. But it, it is, it was my most telling experience. And I would never, as hard of a time as I had in Rochester with my life and everything, I would never take that back in a million years. Because I, I grew exponentially in just those few months that I was there, you know? Brent, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, so, like, the teacher, like, the, the student and the teacher, you can see that relationship anywhere. You can see that when I coach volleyball, when I'm in business and somebody comes in and they're a new hire, I'm the teacher. But specifically, you know, the teachers that I've really seen, yourself and a variety of other people, I think they almost, like, their caring gene is almost, like, amplified. Like, you guys really, really have really, really good hearts. And you go into these situations, especially when you're younger, typically, at least how I've seen it, it's like a lot of my friends at Providence College go into um, areas which desperately need great teachers. I guess my question is like, what do you think? What is my question? I think my question is like, why did you choose teaching? You know what? What drew you to the situation where you were very much called for? You know, like you said you learned so much from it. So I, I would say, like, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think like when I'm thinking about what brought me into teaching, I mean, was Arrowhead, and it was working with individuals who, um, you know, have disabilities. But I, I think what really kicked off my like true path towards caring and like being able to see all of my students for who they are and acknowledge that and celebrate that was actually at Syracuse. Um, I had a class that was like cultural relevance and differentiation. Um, So it was a lot of combining. um, It was a lot of learning about what history actually was and how we should be teaching it to kids. And I think there was this woman, oh my God, her name was Bettina Love. I will never forget it. Incredible human being came to talk to us And she started teaching and she's having us do all this stuff. And she's like, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. We're doing it. And then finally, I don't even know who, someone was like, hey, I have a quick question. And she just stopped everything and was like, what's your question? And the girl, it was like a clarifying question or something. And then she looked at us and was like, why am I making you do this? And not a single person knew because they were so random and out there. And we were like, what the fuck is going on? And she was like, students don't ask why. They don't know how to ask why until they're in high school. And then you hear, why do I have to learn geometry and algebra? Like, that's really it, right? But then, like, when you're younger and you're being taught by a teacher, this is the way that it is, you fully take that. And you don't question it because that's what you were raised to do. So, like, as we're sitting there, she's talking about it, and she then moved into the, she was a, she was a black woman, and she was there to talk about cultural relevance, um, and she had said, like, when kids first learn about, um, like, slavery, they are told black people are slaves. They aren't told black people are enslaved. And that is a huge difference. And as a kid, you don't question it. You don't raise any, anything. 
So I think that was like one of my most powerful experiences where I was like, I need to look at what I'm doing and I need to really, really know why. Because if I don't know why, why, why the fuck am I making these kids do it? Do you know what I mean? And I feel like that was like a huge driving force for me. Um, and then just, you know, on top of it, like so many people who are like people of color get put into special education wrongfully. And I will never not be a proponent of fighting for a kid to get out of it because that can be a stigma in itself. And, you know, if you don't need those services, if you've just had teachers who don't want to deal with you behaviorally, I'll have a word with those teachers. But like when I was at, when I was at Rochester, I got three kids out of special ed because they didn't belong there. Their behaviors just were bad. That doesn't, you know what I mean? Like that is a whole other situation. And I, I would just love to be the proponent of inclusion across everything, abilities, races, sexualities, everything, inclusion, and then just being culturally relevant because we don't learn the truth. And I think I couldn't sit back and not pass that truth on, which is really what also took me from like, um, like more severe disabilities to more moderate because I have that impact. But because I mean, I started special ed because of working with individuals with severe disabilities. And I think my path has just quickly taken me in a very different direction because of that conversation. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think just going back to kind of the school part, you know, I think when, when I was, you know, people that, you know, I went to school with were learning about, about race and, and slavery, it was like a, a lot of times, and I think this is pretty common, you know, we read about people of color and specifically black people and the way that they are treated so poorly. And so we look at them as, as victims instead of, you know, having more focus on, you know, black, black excellence, I guess, and not seeing, not seeing black people as victims and seeing them as, you know, and I just, it, it's, it's hard for me to explain that, but I just think like, if we can do a better job of teaching our, our young people in schools that, you know, yes, the, they, they were enslaved, but I think it's important to be like, okay, they were taken against their will. This isn't something that they had a choice in. And, you know, there can still be, you know, negative things that you can teach about, but I think it's important to teach kids about positive people as well. And I think, you know, the schools that I went to did a, a, a decent job at that. You know, I think when I was in elementary school, um, Ruby Bridges came and spoke at our school. Um, and if you remember who she is, she is... I can't remember if this is in Massachusetts or not, but she um, was a, a young black girl who went to uh, kind of a predominantly majority majority white um, school, and all the white students like refused to go because their parents, or well, their parents refused to let the white kids go to school to kind of be in class with her, and it just I don't remember I don't remember much from that conversation when she came to speak with us. But I just remember, like, wow, that was an experience that, you know, should, like, more people, more kids should have the opportunity to see black people as powerful people and strong people and not see them as victims of police brutality and things, things, things of that nature. One thing I think about, like, 
world. I think it was actually more of like a, a bare bone U.S. history. And I remember sitting down, and my teacher was like, right before I think it was like Thanksgiving or winter break, and he was like, "All right, we have one day to do World War Two, all of World War Two, like the entire Second World War that shaped pretty much everything that we've done now." Was a class. So I think about like the extent to which I was like unaware that we like interned humans that we had internment camps from 42 to 45 of Japanese Americans. I'm like, that's so wrong. Um, but if I had 45 minutes to go through all of world war two, how many minutes of that would I give? Right. In this conversation, we could say at least five to 10 because it's very prevalent to the stigmas within our society that definitely lingered from it. But, you know, I look at educators and I think that, they are the first people to pick up the baton outside of the parents of forming these very malleable minds. Um, and yet they have a very difficult thing where they have a very fixed amount of time. And the only place that we really get to understand our culture is through history and English and in a world where people think that mathematics and science, because we're definitely born out of like, you know, scientific reasoning and all that thing. And if you can prove it, like that just takes so much more, um, that has so much more gravitas in school. Like if you remember when you were in seventh grade, and this is if you're listening and you're from like Kentucky or something, and this is not how schools work for you, then the first time you like the first time you really judge at least the native is in seventh grade, whether you're putting into advanced mathematics and your academic stuck is grounded in how well you can work through math, which is, um, you know, I write long things every single day. Um, I work through historical analysis every day. I've never once you know, used algebra. And, and that's not to say, like, that's not to dismiss that as a very important field. Um, but, it, you know, maybe finding a way to make sure our history is both informative of, just paints a fuller picture of how this nation came to be. That's like, that isn't that big of an ask, I feel like. I really don't. Um, I think that in college, there's diversity requirements. I think things like that, if they can be implemented, um, should be. And I think that as we look at all these budgets and you know these adults that are in these suits tell us that we can't find money for things, and then we look at the policing budget and things like that, even within our own town, um, th- that it's not, it's the system's not working. Like education's not working. Just town budgets isn't working. The national thing isn't working. So like. I'm not okay with just hearing like we don't have the funding for it when that's just not true. You can always find funding for things that need to get done and finding diversity requirements, finding ways to teach a full history is something that needs to get done. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would definitely agree. You know, I think like we need to really learn, get a full picture about our country. And I think a lot of times there are kind of bad areas in our history that like are glossed over. So like slavery, perfect example. I mean, there's time spent on it, but it's just like, oh, it's, you know, not that bad. Like, it, like it's over, you know, the slaves were freed and, you know, whenever, was it 1865 or whatever, but it's like, not, not, not really. I mean, like, you can still see that there are elements of, you know, our country that, you know, slavery is still kind of a thing, you know, whether it's, you know, not, not exactly, but it's like, I think when you see, you know, black males going through the um like prison prison system it's like they are enslaved in a way because they are you know used for free labor and it's just like i know that 
a lot of people want to say, oh, you know, slavery's in the past, but it's like, there's still elements of it that are very prevalent in today's society. And I don't know, I just, I think a lot more would get done if people just were more aware of things that, that, that are going on and not just being like, oh, you know, this country is great. We've done a lot of great things, but I think focusing on things that maybe we've done poorly and like, how can we learn from that? Um, and how can we grow from that? And I think that's kind of an area that I think we, we need to do better in, in terms of education. I will say too, like when we're talking and like, this is a little, we're bouncing back a little bit to what Drew was saying, but like culturally relevant teaching, I had one course on it in Syracuse and it was split <laughs> in half between differentiation and that. You know, and I, in my grad program, I had a whole summer class dedicated to it, and it was amazing. But, like, I wouldn't have had that experience being told how to teach it for kids unless I didn't take that class. And I think it is possible for math, science, history, English, art, phys ed, all of those are, you are able to be culturally relevant in that content at some way or another. Um, but I think really what, what teachers have the hardest time with is one lack of materials which is like kind of what you were saying but two is the fact that our education system is built on a lot of standardized testing correct Mm -hmm. so depending on where you come from and i also took a whole class on this Mm -hmm. is those tests are literally created for straight white males and like you hear that and you're like oh yeah okay sure whatever but when you go through the questions if you were someone from another country and they ask you a question on like Daffy Duck and you don't know who the hell Daffy Duck is, it ruins the entire context of the question. And then you don't know how to answer it. So it's like how we relate to things in those, like everything that we learned, like in Natick was reflected on a standardized test. I can tell you right now, not a single thing that we were teaching in Rochester with our materials reflected what current standardized tests reflected. Like it, that's, you know, I think it's just a, that part of that broken system that we have is that all these things are possible, but we are told that we are, like, not allowed to do them or that's too far or you can't read that book in English, you know, like, because it talks about who knows what. Yet all we all we have from Natick was To Kill a Mockingbird. That was my experience in racism in high school was that one book. That was it. And someone in my class read the N-word out loud while reading that book and was white. And no one was upset. They were like, it's just a word in the book. That's not okay. (laughs) That's never okay. You know what I mean? Like, I think it it truly for me, and I know it's my job, so I guess I keep coming back to it. But if our education system was different, if we had different materials, if we learned about how freaking like trans queer women of color were the ones who started the entire pride movement i think we'd be learning about it a little bit differently now you know what i mean like people don't talk about marsha p johnson but that's because people don't know who she is you know and she basically let off the entire pride movement and even within the black community trans women are you know almost viewed as not as important as black men now at this point you know like everyone got really mad and upset over George Floyd, but nobody said anything about the countless women that were then murdered like a week later who were trans women of color. You know, I think it's, I think we need to listen and hear these things, but also I think just 
if we just keep learning about things, we are never going to make any changes. Because, like, I know about systemic racism in schools. But, like, what can I do besides just tell my kids that it exists, you know? Unless I have actual curriculum that I can use and they can grow from and and truly reflect on and have diverse staff. Like, we do have – I mean, there's diversity on our staff, but I – like, more increased diversity even in Natick would be just so – huge i think yeah one thing i've noticed um this is from outside of my like small sphere so these are friends of friends but um i noticed that like when colleges give that blanket like statement where it's like we care deeply about every like the very blanket four sentence thing that's written with their legal team there and it's written with their hr person there and they press that out students talk about 18 19 year old students are giving tangible pushback saying like like accountability like really like show me these three or four things that we want that would make us feel more included not your four to six sentence thing and i think there's so much power to that and what you're kind of talking about is like yeah i know everything that's in front of me but what would be some tangible asks that if we implemented we would be better for it i think that's so awesome that you're thinking like that mm-hmm. But actually, have, did you see it in Washington, D.C.? The mayor had written, like, Black Lives Matter, like, massively on the streets. And I saw a lot of people respond back and be like, that's super nice, but what are you going to do to actually change the issues in D.C. right now? And it's like, oh, nothing? Oh, okay, so then this was just a show for you to, you know, like, we need less showmanship and we need more actual literal change. Right. That's, wait, that's one thing that I think is so rich right there within itself is how much of these things are really important because they are shifting the culture and they're shifting the zeitgeist and they're shifting how people feel about an issue. and Or is it a PR thing that just says, hey, I'm with the times, tip the cap, go back to the status quo. And I really, when I say I don't know, I really don't know. Like when statues are getting taken down and all these issues, I'm like, is this a really good starting point to reordering a society where our values are matching things that we're seeing here? Or is this the like pandering, like tap you on the top of the head and then once basketball comes back on, right? Nothing, the big systems. Like I, I did see somewhere where it was like, you know, don't necessarily attack the cops. That's important, but attack the system that allowed the cops to do that. And I was like, oh, that's very higher level thinking really I know I just kind of rambled for a while there, but do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, So I think in terms of, you know, talking about, you know, ways that, you know, we've kind of, I don't know, changed our thinking is the right thing to, to say, but I think it might be important for the three of us to maybe talk about ways that we're trying to kind of address this issue ourselves, you know, in you know, in, in literature, you know, uh, television, movies, like any of that stuff. Um, so I guess I'd just be curious to talk to the two of you about things that you've maybe learned or like things that you've read or any anything like that. I will say, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm learning more about that has been almost kind of like an internal struggle, I guess, would be the whole um, defunding the police. Um, yeah. I think when I first saw it, I did not understand what it meant. 
and I had this immediate panic of like, Me too. we're gonna abolish the police, like, yeah. holy, you know. And then, then people posted things, and I read about it, and I was like, oh, so what you're saying is that the LAPD does not need a Lamborghini cop car, but their school system needs books. That makes sense to me, right? right. So it's like, now that people are posting like alternatives to what that could look like and like spreading out what the police handle and giving it to different organizations like the more i learn about that i feel like i i'm understanding things at a deeper level do you know what i mean like, absolutely does that make sense? yeah 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 where okay. it's like you maybe learn about something that you've never thought of and then you start seeing it all over the place yeah i think that's exactly the way that i was feeling so i was literally feeling the exact same way i'm like okay well you know if we do do these things well then you know who's going to protect people but then you know as i read more and more into it, it starts to make a lot more sense and it starts to be like okay well oftentimes police officers are called for pretty much anything and they're not equipped to handle the situations and it's like well we need to start getting people that are equipped to handle these situations you know so I, yeah it's it's something that i definitely have learned learned a lot more about and you know researched a lot more about I really do. I really do think that's the thing. Just with like everything I've been reading about and learning, I think that is the one thing I'm taking the most away from. And like I have, I, I think I've told this to you both before, but I have so many people in my life who are a part of law enforcement, and like it is so hard for me because I love those people so freaking much, and I respect them. I was raised to respect police, and I know you know, the different realities of it, but there have just been things that have happened, like, that have come up, and there's this show called Dear White People um, on Netflix, and there's this one episode that I think was my kickoff to finally really truly seeing what it's like to be a black person when a cop shows up, and, like, the episode scared me to my core. I couldn't watch the show for, like, a month, but then, like, the more I read about it, the more I think about that one scene, like I really I was scared for that person and I I feel the the black male that was in the mood or the show but I was scared of the cop and I'm a white woman I don't really have a right to be scared of cop but I was and now that I'm reading about it and learning about things now I'm like oh my god that situation could have been handled 300 different ways and it could have been better in every single one and it's it's like the more you read the more you see that it's, like, we're not saying that we have to fire every single police officer. Like, that is not the case. But when people are getting called for a mental health issue to a house and you show up gun first and that guy's autistic and he's a person of color and you don't understand and you shoot him without asking, I can tell you right now a social worker wouldn't do that. And that's, you know, it's just diverting different people to take care of situations that they're equipped to handle. I think that you said it really beautifully Gary it's just they're not equipped to handle it yeah and I think it's it's more often it's way too easy for people to just take a statement like you know defund or abolish the police at face value and start being like oh well you know well then how is and it's just like I think that's just kind of a microcosm of a larger problem in society where there's this you know statement and people just want to disagree with it immediately and don't want to you know, read into it, and it's like, hey, it's okay to change your mind, but it's like, you need to open yourself up to 
understand a different way of thinking and not just immediately be like, oh no, like I'm not going to support that. And like, that's the part of it that just drives me crazy where it's like, all you have to do is read and do some research and try to grow. And it's like, if you're just not going to do it, well, like what, what's the point of everything? You know, if you're not going to try to grow as a human being, well, what are, what are we do? What are we doing here? Yes. So, just so many snaps. Just <laughs> that is that is a really great question, Garrett. Cool. You're not supposed to live the same year over and over and over for 75 years. You're supposed to grow and change your opinion yeah. and take the knowledge, learn, and pass it on to others in a loving way. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to just make up the correct decision at 17 and never ever change. Right. It takes so much reflection too, yeah. which like, I guess I'm, I'm going to like tangent slightly over to mental health for a second, mm-hmm. but like if we were taking care of our mental health as a society, the way that we should, I have a feeling that a lot of this would not be as intense and terrifying and awful as it is. Right. Yeah. Cause you've got people who grew up and their parents told them they were a certain way they're so smart and they're the best and they're white and what do you mean like they're poor but they still they don't get as many chances in life and it's like all of these things if you just sat looked at your mental health talked to a therapist broke down that you need to be open-minded broke down that change is okay like if you really looked through your brain and saw why you think the way that you do I think the entire society, our entire society would open up and be like, okay, I'm listening. But mm-hmm. instead, we get people who are like, no, I'm right, you're stupid, and they, like, mm-hmm. lash out. And it's like, you know lashing out is the first sign that someone feels like they're less than, right? right. And that's what white people are scared of. They're scared to be considered less than. But the fact of the matter is, is that they've been treating other human beings like they're less than, they're for hundreds of years and it's not our turn anymore it's just not like there's i mean there's so many situations that like pop into my brain but like even just when someone points out something like oh hey i'm gonna use a real life example like so the dixie chicks um are getting rid of the dixie part of their name so now they're just the chicks which is dope because dixie has a really negative connotation for sure Uh, and there was a comment on one of those articles that's like, this is appalling. Um, I can't believe they'll get rid of Dixie, but they won't get rid of Chicks. Chicks is offensive. And it was like this white older woman. And I, I just had to read this conversation sitting there like, I understand that you don't like that word that is being used, but how do you not see that the other word that they got rid of was worse and is better for an entire race instead of a couple women? Do you know what I mean? Like that... I just feel like if we could sit and actually see that we're not as important right now and that we could really look at change, I mean, I'd like to hope that it would be different, right? If I speak on that for a second, like, when we see, um, or if we just go through history, like, people, the Crusades, like, in Jerusalem, like, people have been killing each other over religion and the right to have their correct God rule the world for almost all of time. And within the American system, there's, like, a lot of like a plurality where it's like you can express your freedom of religion 
And that's a really, 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 really unique thing and really powerful thing. And I love that everyone can express what they feel, um, you know, theologically. However, to that point, people will go out and be like, well, why can't I believe in this? Why can't I believe in the flying spaghetti monster? And it's like, these individuals are missing the point that like, the world is literally not only about them and that like people have died over things like this. And if it, we can create a world where people feel safe in it, feel like comfortable in themselves, that's so much more important than like this little asterisk that you can make yourself feel this way and like reason your way through it. Like with the chicks thing, it's like, it's, that's just not prevalent. Like that person who made that argument, it's like, this is just not what we're working on. This whole world is not just made and centered for you. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, yeah. Garrett, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, like, cause I know just with your with your job and your career, and um, I know mainly you focus on hockey, but I know you do other um, things too. Do you feel like? Because I know I've heard the stereotype, like, and I'll say it even though I know it's wrong, but like, like black people don't play hockey, like that kind of thing. Is there like a large? Is it is there racism in hockey? Is that why, or is it? What do you, I don't know. I don't know much about it, but I've always heard that, and I don't quite get it. I guess. Yeah, I'm. I'm like so over the moon. So happy that you asked that question, because <laughs> this is something that. I've been thinking about and it's been in my consciousness for for a while so um, yes I will answer your question there definitely is you know racism very prevalent in hockey and so um, actually what's so great is recently I think it was maybe a month or so ago there are a bunch of black NHL players that have created the Hockey Diversity Alliance and so they're trying to kind of eliminate and get rid of discrimination especially kind of at the youth and younger levels um and so there's this great conversation that i listened to i think it was yesterday and it was about a 40-minute conversation of a bunch of these guys former and current nhl players and just sharing about the experiences that they've had and you know what they're trying to do to try to change you know what's going on in in hockey because i think racism is very prevalent especially at the younger you know junior levels and you know, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that hockey is a sport where obviously you have a lot of equipment and it's a sport that a lot of, you know, affluent white people participate in because it's an expensive sport. And, you know, a lot of these, these black players share that, you know, their families, they grew up poor and couldn't really afford this equipment. And so, you know, it's just such a unique situation because a lot of these guys their families sacrifice literally everything for them to be able to play. And it's just almost like they have to work twice as hard because of the things that you'll hear from the fans or just, you know, microaggressions and things like that. And it's just a sport where it's so dominated by people that, you know, are wealthy and have money that, you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's very difficult for black hockey players. I'm glad that they've founded this, this, um, this alliance to try to to try to combat this but i think that hockey in particular is a very long way to go in terms of that i didn't even think about the equipment yeah. like that thought literally never even crossed my mind yeah. 
and it's just a it's lot like of it's hundreds of dollars right yeah like for... i'm not sure exactly but it is it is very expensive and you know one of the other things is there just is not a lot of representation and you know there are not a lot of you know one of the guys said there's not a lot of players that look like me and so it's just a sport that's just so dominated by one particular race and then you have you know a group of people that you know do want to participate in it but then it's like you know oh you're different you know i'm not comfortable with that and it's just kind of it's it, it's really kind of crazy to me but it was a really important you know conversation that i that i listened to um, and it's something that i'm definitely you know very passionate about i think I mean, obviously, it's a massive question, but do you feel like there's an avenue that's getting created for that, like, beyond just, like, those black players stepping up? Like, or is there, like, an organizational thing from, like, the NHL, or, or is it just not yet? I, I wouldn't say yet. You know, there are a bunch of, you know, white hockey players that have shared, you know, a bunch of, a, a, lot, a lot of statements about the fact that, hey, I've not experienced the things that you've experienced but I'm willing to, you know, listen and kind of be a part of the change. Um, there's not really been anything that's that's been a change, but, you know, it's definitely, I think, that there's been some momentum in creating more inclusion for the game. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that they, they are moving in the right direction, but there still are a lot of a lot of steps that I think need to be taken for things to kind of be at a point where, you know, things are things are at a, at a good point I guess and I think it's it's interesting that you asked about hockey because I mean that sport in particular you know is so very not diverse really at all you know there are maybe a hand a couple handfuls of black players in the league um, you know, but then you look at other sports with the, with football, basketball, baseball, even, you know, there is kind of a pretty healthy amount of diversity. I mean, I think baseball, though, is an example of kind of there's not a lot of black athletes. And, you know, baseball is a sport where you're kind of expected to do certain things. And if you are outside of that box, it's like, you know, a totally different thing. Like, I'm trying to think of examples, but it's like, kind of things that only black players get labeled as like, oh, you know, their skill sets can be used in a different way. And, you know, you see that a lot in football, especially with black athletic quarterbacks that a lot of people are like, oh, they could play another position because they're so athletic. And instead it's decision making like the language is like if you actually track it over time, it's like it's very eye opening, you know, and I think it's. Is very prevalent in this year's draft. Jalen Hurts, a quarterback who played at Alabama and then played at Oklahoma, I think was asked some questions about, oh, how would you feel about switching positions? And there's a lot of language like that where it's like, well, you wouldn't ask a white quarterback those questions, you know? So it's just, it's, it's very interesting. Like a lot of that stuff is prevalent um, in, in, the, in sports in general. Yeah. Think about like hitting a baseball. Like think about like um, when I've been in Fenway. Like hitting a baseball has got to be the hardest thing for a human to do. You have like point however many seconds to hit a ninety mile an hour fastball. That could be a curveball. That could be a changeup. And on top of that, like at least fit, I was thinking just while you were talking about hockey, 
at least 50 plus times I've heard the hard N word said in Fenway Park, right? And that might be another layer is how um, Boston has a, is, is um, diverse and also very segregated in the way that our neighborhoods are all like, you know, the north end, the south end, all these things. And yeah, it's hard enough to play baseball and it's even harder for this added layer of um, you have to deal with racism. Uh, we see that in soccer. We see that in so many sports. And, you know, that's not right. And you see teams, like, walking off the pitch in soccer. You see um, people speaking out. And um, I don't know. That's just so, that's so crazy to me. Yeah. That's, like, that just shows you, you – know, I don't really know how to say it, but like sports are the media. Like sports are, at least for like you and I, like for a lot of people that are just sports fanatics, like this is where we understand and can work through all these these bigger issues in society. And like you see things like that. I don't really know how to work through something like that and be more helpful towards that. But like I, I do know that is a massive problem. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's just a big thing. It's just a problem in general, not just in sports that – you know, black athletes, black people have to work twice as hard to, you know, get noticed or get, you know, get further in this world. Like, that's just not right. Like, it should never be that way. And it's just like, that's kind of the part that makes me so upset with the hockey thing that it's like, you already have a number of players that come from poor backgrounds. Their families have to sacrifice so much for them, like put their lives on hold. For them to you know play a game and try to advance their career and then on top of that you get people that you know just make racist comments and it's like they have to work twice as hard they have to be told that can't affect you like you have to be stronger and it's just like that's just not okay to me there are a number of players that shared that you know had white parents or had parents that set sat them down and said you need to have tougher skin. You can't let these things affect you. And it's like, that's just so crazy to me. Like, I can't fathom that. Being told at an age of 17, 18, some of these guys are younger when they go into playing juniors. And it's like, why the heck do you have to tell someone that you have to have tougher skin if someone shouts a racial slur at you? It's just like, I just, I, it boggles my mind how insane that is, how that whole idea is that just because someone is of a different skin color that they have to work harder. It's just like, it, that, that stuff makes me really angry. Well, you know what, and there's even a deeper level to it too, is that for a lot of these young black males, their self-worth is in their athletic ability right. and their possibility of making it big, right? Exactly. Getting to the professional league. And how many of these kids don't make it through to that level? Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Because people aren't promoting them to go to business school. They're not promoting them to go into these different programs that they could then be successful in their own way. Mm-hmm. But people are like, oh, no, you, you're a young black male. You're going to play sports. And I, that's a whole other set of, like, very messed up yeah. expectations, even within, like, what you're saying. You're, I didn't even think about how really across the board depending on the sport it's the diversity is different but then Mm -hmm. the expectations are different right so then it's i mean it it really just goes to show how truly entrenched this is in our society and what we view as acceptable or what we view as right and wrong you Mm -hmm. know 
Yeah, and so one of the... One thing I just uh, thought of right now is just, like, yeah. obviously, like, we just are taught in under such a Eurocentric, like, you know, like, when we go through, like, the... When we do, like, the immigration unit, like, I'm, literally, this is just coming to me, but, like, oh, like, these great people during the potato famine, no potatoes, and they came over to Ellis Island, and then they made a life for themselves because America is prosperous if you work hard. End of lesson. Bell rings and you go off to the other class. Did we ever talk about like, like how like slaves were like shipped over and the slave trade and the economic need in the South? Like, do we ever talk about that? And that's like, that's just so wild to me. I wonder if, God, like, I mean, I, I'm sure this podcast could go on for eight hours and I actually have the caffeine and the time for both, but, um, just think, you know, think about all, all these things that are getting brought up are just kind of, you know, they're building on top of each other. But Yeah, and it, and it makes you think. And I think that's, that's the point of all this is to kind of take a, take a step back and be like, wait, you know, have I experienced this? Have I, you know, been a part of, you know, making, making comments or being part of the problem? And I think that's the biggest thing is just kind of recognizing these things is just, I think, really, really important and, you know, recognizing that, you know, you can grow and like you can you can change and you know you can think back and you know feel self guilt, but I think at the same time it's like it's part of the human experience to try to to try to grow and try to be a better person every single day. I feel like at the end of the day, as long as you're someone who is listening and open to truly hear what others are saying then you're in the fight for human rights and civil rights and mm -hmm. you know you're a part of it but I, I think the one thing we didn't really talk about but I would love to bring up is just that when people say like oh this is a political thing like you guys are making this political or whatever it's like no y'all this is not a political thing this is a human rights thing mm -hmm. and at the end of the day if you're trying to politicize human rights you need to really look at yourself because you are a part of the problem you right. know it's like, don't look at me and say that voting, I'm not, like, anyone who votes for Trump is voting to keep our society racist. That's I, my opinion. And but I if think, those yeah. people look at me and say, black lives matter, and I want to support them, then at some level, they believe in human rights, and I'm willing to talk. If you look at me and say that human rights are political, and you're siding with this person because you're just telling me to my face that you're racist and you're not going to change, you know? I think that's just the one thing that I keep seeing, and it's like, y'all, this is not political. <laughs> this is like human lives. You can't say all lives matter if you're not willing to fight for them all. Yeah, and I think oftentimes, like, it's just, it's way too easy for someone to... If, especially if someone disagrees with you, it's very easy for them just to be like, no, and have a, a counter response instead of being like, oh, okay, like, I may not agree, but like, I can see where you're coming from and maybe they can come around to it. But it's too many people that are just like, nope, all lives matter. Nope, you know, and they're just refusing to listen. And it just goes back to this point. Well, you know, if you're just going to stay the way that you always are, well, then it's like, well, what's, what's the point? Like, you know, and it just, I, it still blows my mind that it's what four or five years later since, you know, the black lives matter movement, people still don't get it. And I think at the time I was thinking like, oh, okay, people either just don't understand it or they just are kind of 
refusing to acknowledge it, but it's like it's been long enough, and it's like, okay, people are just being willfully ignorant, and they just don't want to listen, and, you know, that that's fine, but it's just like, I, or, well, no, it's not fine, but I just think it's, yeah, it's it's human rights, it's not, it's not political, and it's like, uh, yeah, it's, and maybe that's just a whole nother conversation, but it's just, I don't know, it's just, it, it's frustrating to me that it's so difficult for people to just grasp a very simple thing, and, you know, I think about, in terms of Black Lives Matter, I watched a, a Michael Che special from a few years ago, and he's talking about this movement, and he's like, all we're asking is that our lives matter, just matters, not matters more, just matters, and it's like, if you're really gonna argue about that, well, it's like, well, then all lives don't matter to you, it's like, you can't just say that, I mean, it's like, you might as well just come out and say, oh, all lives matter to me except for black lives, you might as well just say that, because that's what it sounds like. Actually, I saw a sign the other day that was, it was in Worcester, and it was painted on this, um, like, community center, and it said, all black lives matter, and I was like, I kind of like that, <laughs> because it's like, again, no one said white lives didn't matter, so we don't even need to address it, but like, like I had said earlier, you know, within the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of, you know, queer and trans women of sure. color are ignored, and Absolutely. it's like, okay, if we're going to talk about all lives, let's talk about all black lives, let's not even bring in anything else into it, and like, I didn't, I haven't looked much more into it, but it did make mm -hmm. me smile to see that, to just kind of be like, hell yeah, we're going to acknowledge everything, all the letters were painted to be different flags too, which is really cool, That's so, awesome. yeah, but just to you know more. If you're ever back, I know, because I know you might have, like, you permanently moved out of Worcester, but if you're ever back, you should get a picture of that, we get that on the Twitter page, we give them a shout out. Mm-hmm, I will, I'll take a picture, it's on my drive home. Or appreciated that. Yeah. Love that. That's awesome. I have a question. Yeah, please. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about this. We're talking about like our society, how it's systemic, how all of these things are happening. And July 4th is coming up. People are going to be celebrating America. Mm -hmm. I feel guilty. Me too. I feel so fucking guilty. I went shopping and normally like every year I'll buy something red, white, and blue and I'll do whatever. This year I bought camo because I just felt, I felt kind of sick putting red, white, and blue on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it, it has to be in a lot of people's consciousness, you know, I think, I think on one hand, you know, you can celebrate it that yes, you know, we live in America, we're free, but then it's like, are, are we really like, it's just, it's, it's hard. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be difficult and it's like, it's probably going to be difficult on social media because you're probably going to see all kinds of people that, you know, say whatever they're going to say. And it's not to say that, you know, loving your country is bad, but I think it's just like, we need to recognize that it's not the same for everyone that, you know, we don't, we don't all, not all of us living in the United States have the same advantages. Not all of us, you know, look at that flag and are proud because not all of us have the same experience, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's going to be, that, that's going to be difficult. I mean, I know for me, like the activities that I usually will get to do on the fourth, I won't be able to. So, um, you know, not, not that that really matters at all, but I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what goes on. But, you know, I think it's, I think for me, especially, it's hard for me to 
you know, be in a celebratory mood because we're going through some, we're going through a very important movement. And I think it's, it's time that we, we all kind of take a, take a second look at what our country really stands for. And well, I think if you, if you look at our country, like at its core, like, I do think that we are in the best, the least broken system, which is still incredibly broken in the sense where, like, I do think that capitalism and then putting laws to put checks on that so capitalism doesn't run amok and that people have representation is so important, which is, to Brett, is very, very earlier point. Like, I do think it, it is, it, like, Black Lives Matter, like, is every social issue, in my opinion, is political in the sense where it should be unilateral or unilateral across the board. Um, and I do think like for me, it's such a big issue that like, I will be voting blue if blue is the way that represents these social issues. Um, but in a way, it, you know, it is, I mean, it's going to be reflected in laws and in politics and in the Supreme court. So I guess in a way that I suppose I do think it's a, a bit, um, could be characterized as having political at least, um, ties to it. And then when I, when I think about celebrating the fourth, there's a social contract that was broken by the Brit, like the Brits to us in 76, 1776. And we rebelled and we got a new life. And we're like, the number one thing is that we need to have freedom of speech among other things. But like, to me, the ability to express that, like, I am not happy with the country right now. They have broken a social contract where we agree that the police force will oversee everybody and take care of the peace. And they are not doing that at all. And we'd all agree with that the ability for you to say, I am not celebrating this country right now. This country is completely broken its contract to us. That is unique to our country versus a lot of other countries. And that is a joy and a gift that we have. However, however, so we were given all the tools with freedom of speech and all these other things, the right to vote. Well, we as white people were. We as white people were. However, as it stands, we have to do the work to also fix this very broken system because it is still very much so broken. And so I think that looks like in a lot of ways and I wouldn't like go ahead and lay out an action plan or things like that. But I think that like the 4th of July is this really polarizing thing where we're not where we need to be. And yet we have a chance to. And I think white privilege within itself perhaps is the ability to ignore all of it, go to the beach and just stick around. Right, maybe that's the most single example of like, hey, that was that was a big movement for a month. Let, like you said, let me get my red, white, and blue tank top and forget about it. Yeah, I think you know, that it's interesting. You know, I, th- I think that last point you just said, you know, about forgetting about it. That you know, to bring in kind of the sports aspect, I am I am concerned about sports coming back, and I think the number one thing you know is it's really not safe enough. You know, first of all, that's kind of the first thing. And I kind of can't believe that there are leagues that are just going ahead with, oh, people are going to test positive. It's part of the thing. And it's like, we really need to stop. But then the second thing is, it's going to create a distraction for a lot of people from these very important social issues. And you do have a heavy majority of people in this country that will watch sports because they want to get away from you know, uncomfortable situations and kind of uncomfortable conversations or, you know, whatever it is. And I'll just say, like, 
the people that are probably going to be saying that on social media is really going to get me going and get me upset because it's like, you really, this, this is not a time to be distracted by something. This is a time that we need to sit down and say, hey, we need to change things. Things need to change and not, you know, fall back into, a, oh, well, sports are back. Oh, basketball is back. Let's, you know, watch a basketball game and get away from all this, you know, quote unquote BS that people say. Um, but I think then on top of that, you know, or to, to combat that, I think that there's going to be a lot of, you know, athlete demonstrations that you're going to see, you know, if the leagues do play, the NBA players, I think, are allowed to put any name on the back of their jersey. So, you know, there might be players that make, you know, statements, social justice statements. And I think, you know, that's going to be important. I think that if there's football played, you're going to see a lot more kneeling and probably from white players. And I think that that's really important. So it's like, I think that on one hand, I hope that it doesn't take away from these conversations, but on the other hand, it might help advance conversations that, okay, you know, you see athletes that are going to, you know, take a stand and be like, we're going to play, but we're not going to stop talking about these issues. I think that too, that you make a really good point, Garrett, that like the athletes now are going to get this power like coming onto TV to coming back into the light where they really truly can promote what's right in this world. And then I, I think at the same time, it's also in the hands of these organizations like the NBA, NHL, all of these teams specifically, like their announcers should be still talking about it and acknowledging it. And like, even if you're announcing a game and the person doesn't like what they hear, they mute it. The players have what they have on their backs, you know, like at the end of the day there, it should be a consistent stream of acknowledgement and like discussion. And I, I was also thinking, you know, like, I'm worried about when things come back and people can distract themselves. But I think you make a really beautiful point that these people, these organizations have the power to take that conversation back. But the question is, will they, you know? Yeah. I hope they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, like, I, I guess we'll see on that. I'm very curious to see what, what happens because that's, you know, coming quicker. But it's just, like, going back to that first point, you know, and this is probably a conversation for another day. Another day, I just really have reservations about whether it's really safe enough to do, to, you know, have these, these tournaments or whatever they're going to do. So I just hope and pray that things are going to be safe enough and, you know, yeah, it's just like I'm I, I'm on edge about it, and you know, people that know me and you guys know me, like sports is everything to me, and I've never really felt this way about sports ever before. Where it's like I want them back so bad, but I'm not willing to bring them back if it's going to be at the expense of the health of you know these athletes and these people that you know we we look up to and are like weirdly role mo role models to us, and it's like. I don't know. It's just it's just a weird a weird thing that I've been dealing with in the last few weeks. So. I think it's also just this is now more like I I'm derailing slightly just off of a COVID thing, but this really is interesting when you look at like how different places and different people and different organizations are all handling this literal pandemic. Right. 
And then there's like this whole separate social justice movement on the side. And it's like, are, are we focusing on one? Are we focusing on both? Are we ignoring either? And I feel like that's part of the freedom that America offers that I almost sometimes wish that they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Solely because it's like you have these people at these town meetings saying like you're taking away my ability to breathe by putting a mask on and it's like when you don't wear a mask you kill like five people like i don't i think there's this weird gap in between what's what people want to do and what's right and i i mean obviously what's right is objective right i can't just make that assumption on everyone but i i do think that there's this weird gray space that we're in right now we're like you we genuinely don't know what we're gonna get and we don't know what they're gonna blame it on you know what i mean like it's it's a whole sea of like who knows how it's gonna go and depending on where you live it, it goes differently right. like i have friends in oregon who literally have never put a mask on in this entire thing i don't like i don't know i that that to me is mind-boggling even, even like the two weeks where it's like you must stay inside and all these things it's like at the end of the day the, one of the biggest troubles of living in our country where everyone's individual rights are the most important things um, it's hard to like for example if you travel in another state like you need to self quarantine for 14 days or whatever that stipulation might be you know you're on the, the scouts the scouts honor you know what I mean and I think that it's like it's just so hard to check the individual rights of, of, of Americans and they're so, so worried about what benefits them and mm-hmm. of course that has very large detrimental effects to the society I think, as a public safety. I think I'm just going to finish this last like COVID thing. So this is something um, I saw on Instagram yesterday from one of my best friends and I you know shared it on Instagram is a tweet from someone is the reason why America isn't recovering from COVID-19 as quickly as other countries is because we have a country that values individualism over collectivism. Nobody here wants to do anything that is a minor inconvenience to them in order to protect their neighbors. And I mean, it's like, if that doesn't just hit the nail on the head where it's like, I think that we as a country really need to do a better job of having just more empathy for people and recognizing that we are a collective nation. We're not a nation of individuals. Like, as ridiculous as that sounds, like, there's still a lot of people that believe that, that, oh, I am an American, I have the right to believe or do whatever I want, and you can't tell me, you can't tell me, you know, otherwise, and it's just like, it's like, it doesn't work like that, you're not allowed to just do whatever you want, like, there are consequences to not wearing a mask, you can infect other people, and heck, you can, you can, you know, kill other people, it's just like, why is this such an inconvenience? It's not like we're, you know, ordering, oh, you have to stay in your house and they're, you know, freaking armed guards like outside your house that you have to stay in your house. Like no one's forcing you to do, it's just like, it's such a minor inconvenience that it just blows my mind that some people have such a problem with it. So, I don't know. I like wearing my mask. I think it looks cool, so fuck it. (laughs) I might just wear my mask uh, after it. <laughs> I'm just Do it. Um. Oh my god. I just remembered the name of the book that I was talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. An hour ago. It's called The Hate You Give. Hmm. 
Okay. And the reason that I had said it's like Thug Tupac is because it's the hey you like the letter you give, and that was his thing like with all of his poetry. So mm-hmm. Thug for him stood for the hate you give. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm. Mm. My mind is powerful. Big brain. <laughs> That was so bad. It took me an hour to... <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well, hey, I got it. Yeah. I snuck it in there. <laughs> um, so I have a question, actually, for, for both of you. Um, so in your like career experiences... Um, how have you tried to combat racism and privilege? You know, or have these opportunities come up that you've had, or not opportunities, but like, have you seen this and what have you done to try to change that if, if possible, I guess. I mean, I feel like mine can be, I feel like I've talked a lot about mine. It's yeah. just really through like my teaching. Right. I feel I've, I've made a really conscious effort. I've checked my privilege before I go to work every day. I make sure that I support all students. Um, I, you know, I, I changed how I taught lessons to be more culturally relevant to represent the students that I have mm-hmm. and the students that I don't have, but they still need to learn anyway. And I, I think I put a really conscious effort forth for doing that. And I, I think the only other thing is I have learned to communicate better with family members and friends mm-hmm. on these subjects in a way where I am not attacking, but in a way where I am listening and reflecting and sharing, you know? So I think those, I know I've, I talked a ton about it earlier, but yeah. those are probably my two biggest things would be my teaching. I'm really trying to change how mm-hmm. our youths racism and how it affects them differently. And sure. If, if I get anything out of it, I hope at least one kid hears that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've been in, in the working world, like, directly for six months, so it's not something where, you know, I've done right. um, very large brushstrokes of change. But I think mm-hmm. one organization that I did have more more pull in was Arrowhead. I know it's something that we um, all are aware of. And, um, you know, I had, like, 130 volunteers my last summer where I was working with them directly, and a lot of them was... I'd pull them aside for coaching sessions and things like that about their life and try to get them set up. But, you know, being the volunteer coordinator, I was the person that planted the flag in the ground as far as this is going to be an inclusive place. All volunteers are welcome. If you move from a place of love, we will take you in completely. I've definitely tried to take that mindset and those actions and those inclusive actions into the workplace. I think specifically for myself, um, I intend to do a lot of recruiting and just being very mindful that and very aware. And I think that we all know this, that leadership and great talent does not strictly come from the six foot white male with, you know, blue eyes or whatever that status quo is that excellence comes from so many places. And um, I know that firsthand on the teams that I'm on. Um, I, I work with a lot of people with, from a lot of different walks of life and, like leadership has no shape or size and promoting that and working through that, you know, working through that in the sense where I can use my voice to recommend people, to hire people, to do things like that in the future. Well then, you know, like you said, like have it work itself out in actions. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Um, well, I think, you know, this is a, a conversation that, you know, we definitely can continue. You know, I think that um, it's a conversation that I'm hoping that we can be able to, and, you know, we can continue this conversation. I think we could do, you know, a part two of this because I think it's just so valuable and important. But I think just in general, this, you know, conversation about race and privilege is something that I think I want to continue to cover in other episodes, you know, if we bring in guests that have, you know, direct experience in this um, and just kind of keeping the conversation going, because I think that's what what we need to do and kind of what our job is to do as well for that or what our job is as white people to continue this conversation that, you know, we have listened to a lot of our black and brown brothers and sisters share their experiences. And it's like, well, we've done a lot of listening or well, we, we need to do more listening, but then we also need to keep the conversation going because it's like, we've been hearing this over and over, but it's like, it's our job to continue the conversation. It's not just up to people of color. It's up to us too. So, yeah, Un unless you guys have any other thoughts, I think we'll call it a day on part one, you know, return to part two, whenever that may be, if it's next week, if it's two weeks from now, you know, wh whenever that is. But um, I just want to say thanks, guys. I think this conversation has been really, really important and really kind of eye-opening for me and something that, you know, this is kind of the first time I've been able to get onto, you know, publication and kind of talk about this Um because it's been weighing on my mind for, for a very long time. So happy that we, we were able to get together. Yeah, maybe one parting thought I do have is like to anyone listening to this that maybe, you know, grew up in Natick, right? Maybe is trying to figure out how to be an ally, trying to figure out what exactly their place is in the world and specifically towards being an ally or being an advocate you know, my advice would be to just let your life speak. That's something that I say to all the people that I work with in a lot of faculties of life is just let your life speak. It's not enough to just, you need to work on yourself before you can work on the world. Absolutely. But keep your foot on the fucking gas and make some change or you'll live and die and nothing will happen. So go ahead and let your life speak. I love both of you, anyone who's listening. I hope that you live a life of impact and of love. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining the, the Breath of Fresh Life podcast. Uh, and God bless you. Uh, I just had like this weird little, because um, I told you I love to listen to My Favorite Murder, the podcast, and they always sign off the podcast with Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered. And I almost just, I was like, oh man, you know what? Stay Sexy and Don't Forget Black Lives Matter. <laughs> it's such a ripoff. But I was like, oh man, that would just slide right in so nice at the end. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for listening, y'all. <laughs>